There's never a bad time to have Jim Hensroth on. He's an addiction counselor with Genesis. And today he's going to share the warning signs for alcohol addiction and his best advice for how to help a loved one who's struggling with addiction. This is Sounds of Good Health with Genesis, brought to you by Genesis Healthcare System. I'm Scott Webb. Jim, it's awesome to have you on again. I know that you're kind of an old pro at this. Always great to speak with you. And I know that you're an addiction counselor. So today we're going to talk about the warning signs for alcohol addiction and how we can help loved ones who may be struggling. So what are the warning signs of alcohol addiction? For those of us that work in this field, there's 11 warning signs or diagnostic criteria. And I don't want to go into any kind of detail with that sure. in the interest of time, but I can kind of hit the highlights of them. One of those would be when a person drinks larger amounts than they really intend to. So a person plans on having two beers after work and they end up having six or eight, or maybe they're going to be home by 6.30 and it's midnight or 11 o'clock. So longer periods of time and larger amounts. And another thing that can be kind of a red flag is a person trying to cut back or control their use, but not being able to really succeed at that. Another thing would be a preoccupation with alcohol use. And that involves anything from just not only just thinking about it, but talking about it. And also you can factor in the amount of time involved in going to get alcohol, the amount of time spent using it, and then recovering from the effects of it. So all of that as the disease of substance use disorder progresses, that sort of stuff tends to take up more and more energy in a person's life. Cravings or an urge to use, noticing that. Having reoccurring problems at work, school, recreation problems. And I'll just kind of throw in there that there's kind of a myth about work that a lot of people have. I find a lot of people say things like, well, I don't really think I have a problem with Mm -hmm. alcohol because I work every day. I just got promoted. I'm working overtime. Well, in our culture, we tend to have a pretty strong work ethic. And a lot of times, work is usually often one of the last things to be impacted by an alcohol problem. What tends to happen more often or earlier on is it starts affecting interpersonal, social, family relationships. That's another one of these warning signs. It's more likely to really affect, impact the people we love well before it starts creating a problem with work. Another thing would be continuing to use, but trying to give up or giving up or reducing important things with the job or recreation or social events, not being able to do those things that used to be pretty a standard part of a person's life, not quite having the time or the ability to do that because the alcohol use is squeezing that stuff out. Using in dangerous situations, driving, climbing on ladders, using power tools, that sort of thing is kind of a red flag as well. And knowing that it's causing problems, health problems or psychological problems, but continuing to use. So, for example, if my doctor says, you got to quit drinking because that's the real reason your blood pressure is so high or it's damaging your heart 
or your liver enzymes are high, or your depression is being made worse because of your alcohol use. And by the way, I mean, alcohol is the depressant. A lot of people don't really think of that. It's kind of counterintuitive because when it's first used, first consumed, there's oftentimes kind of a lift in mood. It feels good. Mm. But that's a pretty short-lived effect. After that uh, is over, then you start to plunge down into a depressed state if the person has clinical depression. So that's really, really making things worse. So if a person's continuing to drink in spite of that sort of thing, that's something that's a real warning sign as well. Tolerance, increased tolerance, takes a lot more to get the same effect that it did early on. And then withdrawal, you know, having withdrawal and with alcohol, withdrawal can be things like, you know, feeling kind of sweaty or increased pulse rate, shakiness, having trouble sleeping. That's a really common one. You know, nausea, anxiety, agitation, maybe even seizures or hallucinations. So having those symptoms occur after drinking or the other part of that would be in the same warning sign category would be drinking to avoid the occurrence of withdrawal. And like I said, that's 11 things I kind of went over there. Yeah. But two of those or more occurring over the course of a 12-month period suggests that there's likely at least a mild alcohol use disorder. And the more of those that happen, you know, the more severe the likelihood of the problem is to be. Yeah, I see what you mean. So at least two over 12 months. And unfortunately, I'm sure for a lot of folks, it's more than two. And I guess, uh, you know, I'm wondering, how do we help then a friend or a loved one, Jim, who's dealing with an alcohol disorder? You know, like, how do we get that conversation going? It's not an easy conversation to have. Maybe you have some suggestions. Well, you're right, Scott. A lot of people feel kind of uncomfortable doing it, and sometimes a person doesn't want to hear that that has a problem. But the best way to start it is, well, it's almost easier to say what not to do. And what not to do would be to not blame or nag that person. When it comes to a substance use disorder, the brain gets tricked into believing that it needs a chemical, a drug to stay alive. So it thinks it needs alcohol to stay alive. And if you're creating some kind of defensiveness in a person, their brain is going to say, well, this is another reason to drink. You know, I'm going to drink because you're blaming me. So blaming or nagging usually makes things worse. But it's best to start out with something like, you know, really showing concern, showing that you care. You've been thinking a lot about this, so you're thoughtful about it. And you bring up why you're concerned and how that person's alcohol use is affecting you. So if I'm doing, I'm going to talk about how it affects me. And if I talk about my feelings associated with it, it's pretty hard for that person to argue with that because, well, I'm the expert of how I feel. You know, you can't know how I feel. So that kind of helps diffuse defensiveness and has a better chance of that person listening. Sometimes it gets to a point where, you know, even though you say, hey, I, I think you really need to get help and you, you need to quit. And if the person doesn't want to quit or isn't able to, and it's really uh, creating a problem, 
sometimes you have to say something like a spouse, for example, might say, I don't think I can handle this anymore. You know, if you don't get some help, I'm going to have to leave. And I've talked to a lot of people. I've worked with a lot of people over the years that has been the thing that really got their attention. You know, I remember one fellow was retirement age. He drank all his life. And his wife finally said, I can't do this anymore. If you don't quit drinking, I'm going to leave. And he said, that was the best thing that ever happened. I wish she had done that when we were first married and I wouldn't have wasted my life. You know, if a person does set that kind of limit, you have to be prepared to follow through because if you don't, you're kind of sending the message that, oh, I'm going to say I'm going to do this, but if a person keeps drinking, it's not going to happen. They're not going to leave after all. Only say that if you're willing to follow through with it. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, I'm sort of that way with my daughter and keeping her room clean. You know, if I if I yeah. threaten if I threaten to take away her phone, I have to really mean it. You know, because otherwise, children and loved ones and friends in general, if they know that there's nothing behind it, there's no substance. You don't really mean it. Then it just was not going to have the desired effect. And I always wonder this, Jim, because you know I'm able to go out with my wife or my family and have a beer or two beers and then stop and then drive home safely, you know, and that's that for the night. Do we have any sense, do you have any sense why some people can't do that? In other words, why do some people have a problem with this? Why does it become alcoholism in some and for others they can just stop for the night or stop for the week or the month or the year or whatever it might be? What is it about some people that it becomes a problem? The big factors would be part of it is environmental and part of it is genetic. A lot of times both of those are really involved, sometimes one more than the other. But as far as environmental factors go, you know, if if I grow up in a home where alcohol abuse is normal Hmm. and I see everybody in my family drinking and they're, you know, drinking in excess and doing unusual things, that's normal to me. I'm going to jump right in and do that and more likely to develop a problem. And also along those lines, if that's normal, if that seems normal to me, I'm more likely to start drinking at an earlier age. Right. And the earlier somebody starts drinking, the more likely they are to develop a problem. So like people that do prevention, Mm -hmm. they really try to do whatever can happen to prolong the onset of a drug use because that reduces the likelihood of becoming an addiction. So you got the environmental factors. The genetic factors are really pretty strong. So an alcohol problem doesn't run in a family as far as genetically it does, but the predisposition or tendency to get that problem is inherited. So basically, chances are if you have, you know, an aunt or an uncle or grandfather, a mom or dad, somebody in there, or more than that in the family that have alcohol problems, or sometimes yeah, I heard that my uncle used to drink, but he quit. Well, usually people don't quit drinking unless there's a reason, there's a problem. Right. So if, if you see that kind of history, 
that's kind of a red flag. And for people that do prevention, that's one of the things they look for with kids is, you know, does anybody else in the family have a problem? And if they do, point out to them that, hey, because this runs in your family, your friends might be able to dabble with this or that and get away with it possibly, but you don't have that great a chance of getting by without something happening, without developing a problem. So yeah, genetic factors right. are really strong. Yeah. Yeah. So genetics, environmental factors, and people who, like yourself, who work to help people with alcoholism and other types of disorders and things, how do we find a good fit? You know, I'm sure there's a lot of trial and error for folks, starting programs, stopping out, dropping out, finding another one. But how best can we try to find a program like the first time that really is a good fit that can help us with our particular disorder, in this case, an alcohol addiction? You want to look for credentials. Is a program well established? Does it have good credentials? Like all of our counselors have master's level training. And our folks have been here for a while. They like it here and see people get better. It's really rewarding. Our nurses that work here, they have BSNs, bachelor's nursing degrees. They all have specialized credentialing in mental health or addiction treatment. I think we're really making a difference in our community, really. Yeah. With all your years of experience, you know, and knowing what works and what doesn't work, what's your best advice as we wrap up here? Well, I think the best advice is to realize that this is a disease. It's a disease of the brain. There's no debate about that. We know that. The science, the imaging available, everything says this is a disease of the brain. When it kicks in, it's chronic. It's there. That's the bad news. The good news is it can be treated. It can go into remission. But you got to have treatment, the right kind of services for that to happen. And doing it on your own is really tough. And a lot of people fail. They feel guilt. They feel shame. Those are really crummy feelings to feel. And usually when you feel those, you want to drink more to deal with those feelings. So it just becomes an endless cycle. So reaching out for help is real important. There's Outpatient program, programming is really common. For example, we have like a whole range of outpatient stuff here. You know, three, the highest level is three hours a, a group, three times a week, morning, afternoon. You can work during the day and come in at night or work during the night, come in during the day. And also knowing that now there's medications available that really can make a difference, can really make it easier for a person. I'll just touch on these stuff real sure. quick. If you, yeah. you know, Camperol really helps as a medication. It really helps with cravings. We offer that. And uh, now Trexone is a medication that not just helps with cravings, but actually blocks the effects of alcohol. So if a person does drink, they really don't get that high or euphoric kind of feeling. So it's you know, kind of like, well, what's the point? You know, I don't really feel the need to do this. And that's also available in injection form, in a form of Vivitrol also. You get a shot once a month, and it kind of gives you that safety net of knowing that for the next month, this is going to be working for me. Yeah. So there's other things too, but that's kind of the, I guess, the big things when you ask that that really come to mind. It's a lot easier to treat now than it ever has been. 
and people do get better. I couldn't do this job for as long as I did if I didn't see people get better. It's a privilege, honestly, to see that take place and play some kind of role in that. So it really works. It's great to see people go out and say, boy, I feel like I'm a better dad now or I'm a better mom. You know, that's really is a good feeling to hear that and to see that happen. Yeah, I think you're so right. You know, it is a disease and we need to talk about it and we need to educate and we do need to recognize we started today with the, you know, sort of the 11 warning signs and going through them. And if you're you or a loved one is has at least two of those for a longer period of time, like a year, you know, it's time. It's time to reach out. It's time to find a program, perhaps at Genesis. Lots of flexibility can still work and so on. But it is a disease, and it is one where there's lots of treatment modalities and lots of options available and compassionate people like yourself and the other folks at Genesis. So, Jim, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much. You stay well. Likewise. Thank you very much, Scott. Great talking to you as well. And for more information, go to genesishcs.org slash services hyphen search slash behavioral hyphen health. And thanks for listening to Sounds of Good Health with Genesis, brought to you by Genesis Healthcare System. If you found this podcast to be helpful, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe, rate, review this podcast, and check out the entire podcast library for additional topics of interest. I'm Scott Webb. Stay well.